It's so good to see so many of your smiling faces. We've got folks that are in from out of town, folks uh, visiting us for the first time. And so if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Ryan. I have the wonderful blessing of serving this church family as the lead pastor. And if you're new here, you're finding us right in the middle of our Kingdom Culture series. And this morning, we're actually going to be looking at what might be one of the most challenging and one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. So strap in, get ready. It's going to be a fun one. This passage that we are going to be looking to and learning from this morning uh, comes from 1 Corinthians 11, and it speaks to the topic of gender roles, God's design for us as men and as women. It's an incredibly insightful passage, and it's a really helpful passage, but because it calls out the differences that exist between men and women, it, it has often been viewed as or even used as a tool for division, both within our culture and even within the church. So my hope and my prayer for today, family, is that God would use this passage to instead reveal to us that these differences between our genders, they're not cause for division. What they are really is an opportunity for us to recognize and to realize the full beauty of God's design for us. So we're going to get to some really good spiritual truth, some really good theological truth this morning. But before we do, I thought we'd start out a little bit more lighthearted and share about some of the physiological differences between men and women. That'd be all right with you guys? Got just a few fun facts for you here this morning. Did you know that on average, men's brains are 10% larger than women's? Don't get upset, ladies. This is just a scientific fact, right? Doesn't mean we use all of those brains. But on average, it's 10% bigger. Scientific fact, just like the fact that women have much stronger connectivity between their brain regions. That's why y'all are able to, to, to connect the dots a lot better. You might even say you use more of your brains than we do. I'll leave that up to your interpretation. But the physiological differences between us, they don't end there. I'm not sure how many of you knew this, but men actually have thicker skin than women. Not literally, of course, or not figuratively, of course. I'm talking about literally, we have actually thicker skin. Meanwhile, women are much more sensitive to smells and to odors, which is honestly kind of a sick joke because guys tend to smell a lot worse. Amen, ladies? That one's not a scientific fact. I just think we all kind of generally know that to be true. But it's not at all bad for you, ladies, because the last fact this morning is that, uh, that females tend to develop mentally uh, much faster, much quicker than their male counterparts. So these are just a few physiological differences that separate us, some differences between us. If I went beyond physical and started including other things, obviously that list would get a lot longer. But why do I point these differences out? Well, because the nature of the culture that surrounds us is to find the things that, that make us different and to use them to draw dividing lines. You notice that? I mean, this isn't just for, for men and women. This is really anything in society, right? It's going to look for things that make us different and use it to divide us. And nowhere has this caused more confusion and conflict historically than when it comes down to the quote-unquote battle of the sexes. That's why I'm so grateful for the word of God. One of many reasons why I'm so grateful for the word of God. Because in it, we see that these things that, that make us different, they are actually an intentional part of God's design. They're not meant to conflict with one another. They're meant to complement one another. They're meant to enable us to do all of these things that God has called us to do 
for his glory. And so that is what I'm confident the Lord is going to reveal to us through his word this morning. But let's not lean on our own understanding. Let's pause for a moment to come before him in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are just humbled. Lord, humbled that we can even stand before you this morning. Lord, we are eager to learn from your word. Ask that you would speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Would you grant us with the discernment that we need to receive the encouragement that is given to us through you in this passage? Submit our, our time, this ministry, and our lives to you, Lord. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen, amen. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning, as I said. And before we, we dive in, I told you these were a little bit challenging and controversial topics. So I want to just ask you to do two simple things for me this morning before we jump in. The first one I want to ask you to do is, is just to come to this text with an open mind. You're actually going to see pretty, pretty clearly right away there are some, some cultural practices that Paul's going to speak to that may not make much sense to you. Right? We don't see these nowadays, but I promise... If you stick with me, there will be a connection for each of you. So just come to this text with an open mind. Second, let me encourage you to stay fully engaged. To stay fully engaged because there are some statements in here that might seem a little bit out of place, a little bit out of balance, maybe even a little bit insensitive to you. But again, I promise if we understand them correctly, you'll come to find that they are a benefit to us, that they are there to encourage us, to guide us, to, to build us up so that we can flourish individually and as a church in this identity that we've been given as sons and daughters of God. So keep an open mind, stay fully engaged. Can you guys do that for me this morning? Yeah. All right, good. Let's look now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin with verse 2. It says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But... I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious... We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, everybody clear on that? We're good? Can invite the worship team back up? Not exactly, right? I told you, these are challenging passages. And what makes it even more challenging is that there are 2,000 years of culture that stand between us and the Corinthian church. 
We've seen that a little bit in the first 10 chapters, but maybe nowhere more so than in this chapter we are reading here. And what's happened is those, those 2,000 years, it, it, it's created this gap that is in many ways, it's concealed a lot of the spiritual principles that actually lie in this passage. It's just covered them up. And so what we tend to do when we come across a passage like this is we just kind of go to the next one, right? We, we gloss over it thinking that, hey, none of this, it's really relevant to us today, so, so there must not be any truths there. But the reality is that there are incredible truths that lie just beneath the surface. So what I want to do this morning is I want to sort of play the role of archaeologist for you this morning. I want to sort of live out my, my fantasy of being Indiana Jones, okay? Uh, is that okay with you guys? Because what we need to do is we need to really dig through some of the contextual complexities that are in this text to see some of the great spiritual truths that lie underneath. Because the truth is, right, some of this context is no longer relevant to us today. I don't see any ladies in here wearing, wearing head coverings. But the spiritual principles that lie underneath still very much apply to us. So we can't just sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. We have to carefully and attentively seek out these important spiritual truths and then work to apply them to our lives. And what's going to happen, family, is we sort of dig down to these cultural, or sorry, to these spiritual principles, dig past the cultural stuff, is we're going to un uncover some important spiritual truths about our gender roles. Again, these are what are meant to equip and to encourage us to live into that purpose that God has given us as his sons and his daughters. So if you are the note-taking kind this morning, I'm actually going to give you all three of my points right up front in one simple statement. Y'all ready for this? All right, men and women are equal in value, distinct in responsibility, and interdependent in mission. We say that again. Men and women are equal in value, distinct in responsibility, and interdependent in mission. I truly believe, family, these three truths, when they are properly understood, when they are humbly lived out, they are what lead to each of us thriving in the roles that we've been given. So let me break each of these down for you, starting with that first point, that men and women are equal in value. Now, I hope this is something that's clear to you, right? We see it all throughout Scripture, right? Beginning with creation. Men and women are both created in God's image, and so clearly, God holds the same value in us both. And it should also be clear to us in the good news of the gospel, right? Jesus did not come to die just for men or just for women. He came and sacrificed himself for all of us. We are all equally forgiven. We have all equally received God's grace. And yet, when we look around us in culture and sometimes even in the church, it doesn't always feel that way, right? It sometimes feels out of balance, and I think there's a reason why. I think it's because we're not operating the way we were designed. Many of us don't understand fully the way we were designed as men and as women. So we're going to do our best in the next 25 minutes or so to, to unpack as much of that as we can. But I just want to just address something up front. We are not going to get to everything. There are so many topics, so many things I wanted to include in this message, and we just didn't have enough time. But I would love to have that conversation with you. So open invitation to myself, to any of our other pastors or elders, if you want to talk about that later. But let's talk about how we were designed. I want to point back to verse 3. Really, this is the crux of this passage where Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that feels a little bit out of balance, doesn't it? feels out of balance for us. And, and I think the reason why is because we get so fixated on that middle phrase. 
I can guarantee you that as you read that, you really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the first or the third phrase. You really focused in on that middle phrase. And it's a shame, really, because the, the key to unlocking the truths that we're talking about this morning, it's really actually found in those bookend phrases. So we're going to address that middle phrase in just a moment. But if I could just ask you, just set that aside just for a second so that we can do a little digging and discover what Paul means when he says that the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. So I want to answer this question for you. Is how, do, how do those truths point us to the equal value that we share with one another? So in order to, to understand this, we actually have to begin by understanding what Paul even means when he uses this word head. This Greek word that Paul uses here that's translated as head is the word kephale. And just like our English word head, it has more than one meaning, right? It's not just a physical head, clearly in this case, but there's a couple of likely scenarios we could talk about here. One would be for it to speak to the head as being the source of something, right? Like the head of a river. The other would be to, to think of this word head and translate it as being uh, like the authority, right? The head of, of command. So which is it? Well, there's a ton of debate over that. I can tell you that much. But if you hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, which Paul does, and which we, of course, do, then you know that, that God the Father is not the, the source of God the Son. Right? So it must mean here that the concept that Paul is speaking to is the concept of authority. And we can sort of fact check this when we do our, our Bible study. We see that this word kephale, it's used over 50 times in the New Testament. Each time it speaks to this concept of authority. Y'all still with me? So when we translate it that way, what Paul is saying more literally is that the authority of every man is Christ, the authority of every woman is her husband, and the authority of Christ is God. I know some of y'all are like, Pastor Ryan, that actually made it worse, right? <laughs> but stick with me here. I promise it's going to come together. If you look at the final phrase in that verse, right, it says that, that, that God the Father is the authority over Christ. Well, let me ask you a question. Is, is the Father superior to the Son? No. Is God the Father more intelligent than Christ? Again, the answer is no. Right? The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God exists as three co-equal, co-eternal persons existing in one essence. Co-equal. So how then does God the Father have authority over God the Son? It's a great question, right? It comes down to this thing called functional subordination. Functional subordination. It makes me feel really, really smart just to say that phrase. But let me break down for you what that actually is. It's what happens when one person willingly submits to the authority of another for the sake of harmony in the relationship. It's not a statement of inferiority, clearly, but it's an act of humility for the sake of harmony. Right? That's exactly what we see in the example of Jesus. When he prays to, to God the Father, not, not my will, but yours be done. Even though Jesus was equal with the Father in every way, he still looked at him as his authority. And in no way did this lessen his value or his dignity. I know this is challenging for us when we think about men and women, but if you think about how we exist in the rest of culture, we actually we do this functional subordination thing pretty well. I mean, think about your workplace, right? You humbly submit, most of you, to the authority of your boss. Your boss may not be smarter than you, may not even be more experienced than you, but, but you humbly submit for the, the sake of harmony in that relationship. 
Same thing when we go out on the streets and, and we encounter a, a, a police officer, somebody in law enforcement. Right? We, we humbly submit. It doesn't lessen our value. It doesn't lessen our dignity. What it does is it brings harmony and order to relationships. It allows them to thrive in the ways that God intended. This is the connection that Paul is trying to make when he holds up the marriage relationship up against the relationship of the Godhead. Are you guys seeing that connection? He's making a definitive statement that men and women are equal in value. So when we read that the head of a wife is her husband, Paul is saying that the wife is, inferior, is not inferior in any way. Only that God's glory and his character are revealed through her in different ways. Okay? The wife is not inferior in any way to the husband. God's glory is just revealed through her in different ways, which leads to my second point this morning. That men and women are distinct in responsibility. Equal in value, but distinct when it comes to our roles and responsibilities. Now, I've got a very simple illustration for you here this morning. I've got a, got a picture I'm going to put up here. What do you see in this picture? A couple of tools, right? What is that, a hammer and a screwdriver? I'm not very handy. Guys, I need you to help me out. <laughs> a hammer and a flathead screwdriver. Now, are these both useful tools? Yeah, of course they are. They're the only two tools I know how to use, so I can tell you that for sure. But a screwdriver has a, a different role, a different function than a hammer, doesn't it? Does that make the screwdriver more valuable than the hammer? Of course not. Well, the same goes for men and for women. We may have different roles, but it doesn't make one of us more valuable than the other. Because the fact is, we were designed to fulfill different functions. I just want to pause for some, some clarification, because what I'm not saying is that, you know, we need to go back to some sort of like 1950s nuclear family sort of model, right? Where, where women spend, you know, all their time in the kitchen and men never go into it. Like, I'm not saying that that's what we need to do at all. Nor is that what this passage is suggesting. And yet I think that's really the, the image that the, the, the world has of the, like the biblical model for families. And then honestly, if I can, it just drives me kind of crazy. Because if you look at scripture, what you'll come to find is a more equal, more cooperative way of life than most of the secular world is even living in right now. I want you to pay attention to this. You guys familiar with the Proverbs 31 woman? Right, the Proverbs 31 woman is what the, the church holds up as like, this is the ideal for you ladies. But if you look at Proverbs 31, I took a deep look at it this week. What you see in the Proverbs 31 woman, she was a business lady. She was selling property. She was teaching. She was farming. I mean, this woman was a boss. Right? You look elsewhere in scripture and you see that men are clearly commanded and expected to have an active and intentional role in the raising up of their kids. The Bible is not some sort of archaic model that the, the world wants you to believe. Right? The, the world wants you to believe that, that the Bible divides gender in destructive ways, but that couldn't be further from the truth. What the Bible presents is really the beauty of what God created. Two genders that are complementary to one another, that are equal in value, but distinct in responsibility. So let's talk about what makes us distinct. Again, we're not going to get into all the details here this morning, but I want to call out what Paul says, because he makes a few curious statements in verses 7 through 9. Let me just revisit them real quickly for you here. It says, woman is the glory of man. And he goes on to say, woman was made from man, and that woman was made for man. 
So woman is the glory of man. Woman was made from man, and woman was made for man. Again, we start to feel that imbalance, don't we? Start to feel that tension in our hearts. Well, let's do some digging. Let's do some archaeology here to get at what Paul is getting at. Because we know from, from the context here, he's not speaking to a superiority or inferiority complex. Instead, what he's doing is he's actually pointing us back to creation, back to the way we were designed to show the distinction in our responsibilities. And since he's already established the, the husband as the authority over the wife, what he's going to do is he's going to show that the role of the wife is to be the helper. And this comes straight out of Genesis 2 verse 18. Right? After God creates Adam, he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, in our context, that word helper, not exactly the best connotation, right? Over the last couple thousand years, this has really been misunderstood and quite honestly, it's been taken advantage of. But let me just encourage you, family, to cut through, that cut through that cultural noise to get to the spiritual truth that is conveyed here. Because if you look at that word helper, that word helper that's used in the Old Testament, it's the first time it's used, by the way, in Genesis 2.18, it's the Hebrew word ezer. It's the same word that's actually used for God when it talks about how, the way he, he pursued his people Israel, the way he helped them. In the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit referred to as what? The helper. So our, our culture may view this as a call for wives to, to be some sort of like subservient maid, but in kingdom culture, this is actually a call to reflect God himself to bear his image and to witness to his glory by living in to the foundational part of your design. Are y'all with me, ladies? This is an incredible, incredible responsibility. So now that we have a better grasp on what makes us distinct, let's talk about the practical implications that these distinctions have, both within the church and within our marriages. We'll begin with the church. So the spiritual principles that, that underlie this passage, along with those found in 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 1 and 2, they point to what is commonly referred to as the doctrine of male headship. The doctrine of male headship. It's actually what we hold to here at Awaken. And what this means is that while man and woman have been created to be equal in value, is that the role of a pastor and an elder is reserved specifically for men. And that qualified men are the ones who are given the responsibility for the authoritative teaching and for the guarding and the guiding and the governing of the church. So for those of you who were, were unaware, you are hopefully now aware, you're only going to see qualified men who are submitted to the Lord in the role of a pastor or elder here at Awaken. So let me answer the burning question. What does that mean for the women? Well, actually, if you look at our passage here in verse 5 today, what you'll actually see is that women were actively participating in the worship and the ministry of the church, even in a time where this was completely countercultural for them to do. And if you look elsewhere throughout the New Testament, you'll see that women play an absolutely integral role in the spread of the gospel, in the church planning efforts. In fact, in Paul's missionary journeys alone, there are mentions of 17 different women who were so instrumental in the growth of the early church. What this shows us, family, is that this doctrine of male headship in no way makes women inferior to men, nor does it lessen your impact for ministry. I mean, all you have to do is look around here in our context and you will see that. Our ladies are making a massive impact in discipleship. 
in our worship ministry, in our kids ministry, in our student ministry, in our prayer ministry, in our life groups. So ladies, hear me when I say that we need you, that we cannot function. We cannot flourish without you. That's a little bit of how this, these implications play out in the church. Let's talk about the implications for our marriages, these practical implications. What does authority and submission look like within marriage? What does it look like for a husband to be the leader? What does it look like for a wife to be the helper? Thankfully, Paul speaks to this in a couple of other places, most notably in Ephesians chapter 5. He begins by giving instruction for the wives. He says this in verses 22 through 24. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He's going to go on and give instruction to the husbands. Shows them what it looks like to lead their wives. Saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So wives, you're called to humbly submit. Husbands, to humbly sacrifice. Are these challenging things to do? Yeah, (laughs) you better believe they are but they are infinitely more easier when there is a mutual commitment to these things. I mean, ladies, isn't it a lot easier to submit to your husband if he is loving you selflessly and sacrificially? Right? And husbands, isn't it so much easier to, to, to lay your life down for your wife when she is respecting you humbly? These commands are so much easier when there is a mutual recognition and commitment to them when you understand and embrace and operate in the way you were designed to live. Everybody on the same page, we good? I know this is some heavy and some thick stuff, but it's important. And I wish I didn't have to make these following statements, but unfortunately we live in a fallen world where these things are constantly taken out of context. So let me just make a few things clear here this morning. First, for the men. These passages do not give you the permission to abuse the authority you have been given, ever. They also don't give you permission to lead your wife into sin, ever. They also don't give you authority over any woman. It's just talking about your spouse. For the ladies, these passages do not mean that you have to submit to your husband if he is abusing you in any way. Nor do you have to follow him into sin. Remember, your authority is for, your submission is first to Christ. He is your priority. He is your primary authority. And lastly, please know these passages in no way take away your ability to stand up for or to defend yourself. I hope you already knew that, but it's important that you do. Listen, family, these passages, when they are properly understood and lived out, they will lead to flourishing marriages and to flourishing churches that bear witness to the world. Which leads us back to our our main passage for today. And back to this confusing topic. I know you all are wanting to know, what about these head coverings? So we're going to dive into that. And I need you guys to stick with me here, okay? If If you've kind of drifted off, come back to me. Because this right here is going to be the bridge that gets to my final point. I really, really want you guys to make it there. So when we come across the confusing cultural context like this, talking about things like head coverings, 
We need to remember to put our, our Indiana Jones hat on and to do some archaeology here. Because right? we need to understand what, what was happening then and then try to figure out then how that matters to us now. Okay? So what was happening then in the Corinthian church is they were surrounded by this sexually promiscuous culture. If you've been here over the last few weeks, right, you, you've heard of some of those details. And this sexually promiscuous culture had been infiltrating and influencing the church. And this is a prime example right here. See, because the, the cultural standard of the day was if you were a woman that wanted to present yourself as virtuous and wanted to sort of set yourself apart from the culture around you is you would wear a head covering in the church. And the primary reason for this was to set yourself apart from the prostitutes in Corinth. There were a lot of prostitutes in Corinth, and what they would do is they would wear their hair down in order to seduce the men. Or some, you hear the talk about head shavings in this, they would actually shave their head in feminist protest. But what Paul's saying here is if a woman comes into a worship gathering and removes her head covering, she is sending a very clear message either about the state of her marriage or about her sexual intentions within the worship gathering. Maybe even both. Are you guys seeing that connection now, now that you know the cultural context? In such a public rejection of authority, such a, a public disrespect of the worship gathering, what it would have revealed is really just an ultimate desire for a woman who does this to put her own desires at the forefront. In other words, to follow the ways of the world. And so I want you to see this. I mean, when you put this defiant act into context, you can start to understand this really has nothing to do with the fabric and everything to do with our faithfulness to live as God has called us to live. I need you to hear that. This has nothing to do with the fabric. It has everything to do with our faithfulness to live as God has called us to live. That right there is the spiritual principle underlying the whole head covering issue. That's why Paul asked this question in verse 13. This is key. Listen to this. He says, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? When we read this, knowing that context, what he's really asking is, do you want the church to look like the rest of the world? Where people are only after their own desires. Do you want the church to look like the rest of the world? Clearly the answer should be a resounding no. Right? We are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart from the world. Not to position ourselves or to, to do things for our own gain, but to humbly submit for the sake of the gospel. Now, I know we don't face the same issue of head coverings in the church today, but I do believe there are plenty of other ways in which our enemy is tempting us to follow the ways of the world. Let me just speak to the men in the room just for a moment because I truly believe that if Paul were writing this letter to us today, he would write us to address two things. The sin of pornography and the sin of passivity. The sin of pornography and the sin of passivity. These are the, the things that the enemy uses most clearly to draw us away from our responsibilities. To erode our relationships. Fellas, it's time we took a stand and stopped living like the rest of the world. It's time we take the responsibility that we've been given seriously and to lead. I say this lovingly with grace as your pastor, but some of y'all got to stop making excuses and honor your commitment to your spouse. Honor your commitment to your church, to your family, to your jobs, to your God. Fellas, you got to lay your life down. Ladies, you think you have a hard call to submit 
Men, the harder challenge is on us. We have to lay our lives down. Honestly, I'm just I'm sick and tired of seeing men who just want the authority and aren't willing to do what God commands of us, to sacrifice. It just doesn't work that way, fellas. You've got to lead by laying your life down. Ladies, I'm not going to have you go home empty-handed either. <laughs> I think that if Paul were writing to the ladies here today, I think he would address the temptation that you face to belittle the men in your life, to see them as incompetent. We see that all over the place in our society. Just turn on any TV show, watch any movie. That's how men are portrayed nowadays. But ladies, you don't need to follow the ways of the world. You don't need to step on or over somebody to prove your worth. You are already equal in value. Don't go give in to those temptations. Listen, family, when we give in to those temptations, what we're doing is we're giving in to this idol culture that surrounds us. What it has the potential to do is to destroy our relationships and to destroy our witness to the world. That right there, I talked about our bridge. That is the bridge to my final point. It's our witness to the world. That's how all of this connects to kingdom culture, family, because what we do here in our relationships and in the church, it's witnessed by the world. This leads me to my third and final point as I invite the worship team back up. Talk about men and women being equal in value, distinct in responsibility, and lastly, men and women are interdependent in mission. Look back with me at verses 11 and 12. It says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. This is such a beautiful thing that Paul does here. Because he points us back to Genesis 2 again, only this time, to show us how much we need one another. That we are interdependent on one another in every way. That from the very outset, before sin even entered into the world, we were given a command to rule over God's creation and to do so together. So men, we can't do this on our own. Just as Adam was incomplete without Eve, so we are incomplete without the women in our lives and in our church. And ladies, I hate to break it to you, but y'all need us too. Our need for one another is mutual. We are interdependent on one another to do the things that God has called and equipped and commanded us to do. Let me ask you, in, in Matthew 28, the great, great Commission, Jesus sends out his followers the command he gives, was that for men or for women? It was for all of us. The command to raise up the next generation. All of us. Are we different in some obvious and painful ways? Absolutely. We are. But these differences, they are meant to be complementary. Uniting us so that we can accomplish the things that God has called us to do to see this city changed to see our world changed by the power of the gospel. So I've got one last question. How do we do this? Might make sense to you now, sort of intellectual, theologically, but how do we do this? Well, Paul gives us the answer. You may have missed it in verse three. We do this by submitting to Christ, by submitting to his authority in our lives. That's where this all has to stem from. 
from a desire to, to leave behind our worldly idol culture and to live a life that is fully engaged with and fully submitted to Jesus. He must be our authority. That is the only way we can accomplish this mission together. And family, do you wanna know what's so mind-blowingly incredible? Is that not only is Jesus our authority, but he is also the perfect example. See, Jesus showed us what it looked like to be strong and yet to be compassionate. He showed us what it looked like to be protective, but also to be nurturing. He showed us what it looked like to be both a leader and a servant. And then he went to the cross. In that one eternity-shaping moment, he displayed humble submission and selfless sacrifice. So if you want to know how to live into this role that you've been given as a son or a daughter of God, simply follow the example of Jesus, who Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And it's that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our authority. Jesus is our example. Family, I want to ask you to stand to your feet now. As we get ready to pray, I just want to encourage you just to take a moment as I pray, just to ask the Lord to search your heart. The reality is none of us are doing this perfectly. Married, single, doesn't matter. We're not even doing this perfectly as a church. But we continue to humble ourselves, to ask the Lord to guide us, and we submit to his authority.